to Unheard Story. Today's a little different. We have Lara and a guest host, Ryan Wagner, the marketing director at Jesus Film, talking with Elizabeth Schenkel, who writes and directs many of the Jesus Film's shorter films. We're really excited to have you hear Elizabeth's story. Joe and I have heard it several times, and it just blows our mind. And part of the story, Elizabeth and her husband, Eric, they actually get beaten almost to death, and they leave the country, but they return. And then they continue to share the gospel with the same people group. Street cred. <laughs> exactly. We also get to hear about Elizabeth's heart for women living in an honor-shame culture and how Jesus brings women peace in the midst of harsh circumstances. In particular, Elizabeth wrote and directed Rivka, which is being used in a number of countries in these kinds of honor-shame cultures. Yeah, it's actually used for discipleship and kind of follow-up to the Jesus film, Macarena, that works really well in that culture. And it's directly written for women, which I think is so great. Okay, let's hear the interview. So Elizabeth, thanks for thanks for coming on this wonderful brand new podcast from Jesus Film Project. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here with you. So uh, Elizabeth, you have been working with Jesus Film Project for how many years now? Well, it depends on how you define it. Um, I guess I've been on staff about 15 years, but. Uh, more than 25 years ago, actually started working with the Jesus film, not necessarily as staff, but uh, as as a Christian worker using the film and, and helping others to do so. Yeah, so that's what I, I would love to um, ask a bunch of questions about kind of your life story of sorts, not necessarily from uh, what was your life like with Jesus Film Project, but even before that time where you and your husband, Eric, uh, were obviously deeply ingrained in, in wanting the gospel to be expanded around the world. And I would, you know, to get from where you grew up from to where you're from, you guys are Northeasterners, to planting churches on the other side of the planet. Can you paint a picture of kind of how that transformed and where from was it you guys got married and thought, oh, I can't wait for us to go on the other side of the planet together? Or is that something that kind of developed uh, as the years went on in your marriage and having children, and then suddenly this is just a big shock, and suddenly you're, you're somewhere else and you're planting churches in a culture that is very different than what you were used to? Well, it's interesting. Before I met Eric, actually, I was interested in missions, uh, but he was more focused at that point on on working in the U.S., um, particularly in in Boston, um, we we actually recessed in our wedding to seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So we were determined as a couple to do our best to serve God in whatever way He gave us, um, and initially that meant. Uh, working in the Northeast and planting a church and starting a school in the Boston area. So um, that between that and raising kids, uh, Eric's grandmother lived with us for seven years. Um, you know, we were we were busy doing stuff in the U.S. and and always trying to be aware of God's leading in the midst of that. And so what, so that's, that's awesome. So how many years were you pastoring together in, in an area? And this is in Boston, right? That's just outside of Boston, 22 years. 
22 years. So you guys are, are wow. you guys are clearly in a very, uh, I don't know how you say it, you're, you're in a flow of life. And then you also mentioned the Lord's leading. So I think like, what, what does that look like? And, and at what point do you feel like, holy cow, I think God's asking us to do something very different than what we've been doing the last many years? Well, it, you know, it, it developed. Um, Eric uh, felt, and I, and I agreed, that he should go back to school at one point. About eight years after he graduated from Harvard, we both felt he should go back and, and do some studying uh, concurrent with the, the pastoral work and the, and the school that we had started and raising the kids and grandma and everything. Um, so he went, fortunately, he's always had an abundance of energy. So he went back to grad school, uh, actually to study around sort of church-state relations. It was very U.S.-centered study, theoretically. But uh, then he was encouraged. He did well in the master's program and that he was involved in and was encouraged by his the fellow who was directing his projects. He was encouraged to apply to Ph.D. programs and um, ended up getting into a program that involved studying world religions. That wasn't his initial intention, but he was able to do the U.S. work underneath, you know, in the context of that program. But he did have to pick a second world religion. So his first was Christianity, uh, focused in the U.S., ended up being somewhat around missions as well. But then the second, just out of, just because he, he, he'd met the head of the Islamic Studies Department and, and liked the guy. And so he picked Islamic studies and, and really God used that to open our eyes to the fact that there were something on the order of a third of the population of the world that had never had the opportunity to hear the gospel. And that just started getting under our skins. Wow. Wow. That's great. Uh, So, okay. So you're starting to see the Lord's movement there, which is pretty, pretty crazy. And then, and then what? Well, he, you know, he went on and, and did his, did his work, um, got his doctorate. Then we were um, in a position where he, we needed him to have essentially take a second job. So he started teaching. He was teaching at a, at a local Christian prep school, as well as pastoring in our little school and the kids and whatever. And so uh, for his seniors in high school, uh, he was, he was teaching a, um, a course on um, apologetics. So for his high school class, he was teaching a course on apologetics and happened to pick up Paul Eshelman's book, I Just Saw Jesus, Hmm. and decided to use that for his seniors. Well, we were both blown away in reading that book at, at what God was doing through the Jesus film. I had taken our kids to see the Jesus film years before when it first came out in the U.S., um, but didn't realize that anything had been done with it since then. So this was like around 1994, and um, we were we we just got excited and thought, "Gee, that that sounds like fun." <laughs> so that was our first taste of the Jesus film. Oh, I'd never heard that. That's really cool. So that kind of blended together with, as we started hearing, actually we had crew staff in our church at that point, and they decided to, or were assigned to take on 
uh, not to have Zuznik shot as their field for sending short-term um, teams. And I love the preparation of your heart uh, that God was doing back with Eric even picking a second religion. That's pretty cool. It was really in the midst of his academic work that we became familiarized with with the Muslim world, with history in the Muslim world. Um, there were some scholars, Muslim scholars, that really captivated us. And, and I think really what it was is, is that we realized, wait a minute, these are just people. You know, these are people like us. This, this isn't a monolithic society, one, you know, one size fits all. This is, you know, there are all kinds of different people. And, and we really liked some of them that we sort of met with quotes um, through, through the reading, through study. And um, we, we just became, I, I don't know, we kind of fell in love with them. Uh, it was fascinating, fascinating group of people. So uh, that was very much outside of our previous engagement, if there was any engagement before. So you guys feel like, I mean, you get, you get to, you get to, and you, like you say, you're just kind of falling in love with these people. Is that, is that kind of true? Before we moved there. This is before. before. Before you moved there. So you guys decide, have you guys decided to move at this point? No, no. We didn't even know where we would move. Um, we were just, just that whole region kind of came alive for us. Hmm. And those, those civilizations, those societies. And then the opportunity came to go over. We were actually invited by uh, crew staff to go over and plant churches alongside both the student movements and the Jesus Film teams that were working very effectively in all through Central Asia. But they needed churches. There weren't any churches that were available to these people. And so we were asked to come and and do what we'd been doing for 22 years to, to help people plant churches. And were you guys asked alone or were there other families that went with you? No, we were asked, just our family went. Um, other people had been asked, nobody else wanted to go. Not anybody, knew, okay. but uh, we were the, yeah. this, this fellow, this, this guy, American guy had been asking everybody who came to visit and there weren't many of them. Um, would you come and plant churches? And, and to everyone else, it sounded like a terrible idea. But somehow in our mid-40s, this, you know, with five kids, a, a dog, a cat, two cars, you know, this sounded like a great idea, which was absolutely nuts. <laughs> so to you, I mean, Elizabeth, if you're, if you're like me, I, you know, I remember uh, talking to a friend of mine to this point where we, my wife and I were feeling very clear direction, even with regards to joining Jesus film project. And there's this moment of, of clarity where you feel like the Lord's clearly guiding you in a certain path. And uh, the friend of mine who I was explaining this to uh, was wise enough to say, you know, write it down right now, journal it, put down in words, what you feel like the Lord is doing. Cause there's going to be this moment where you're going to wonder what in the world am I doing? Or maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe this was a bad idea. Did you ever feel like, did you and Eric ever collaboratively ever just um, have those thoughts or was it always just, nope, this is it. Piece of cake. Let's do it. No, no. It was a, you know, the year leading up, once we made the decision um, and I agreed to move there for one year, 
I mm-hmm. said, after a year, let's reevaluate. So we yeah. didn't initially sell the house. We rented it. Um, you know, we did things to, to make sure that if we needed to, we could sort of re-enter, not necessarily re-enter our previous lives, but re-enter the U.S. So it was a big leap, but it wasn't the ultimate big leap. And actually through that year after between when we decided one big confirmation, we sent out a letter to all the folks who'd come through our church from Harvard and the Boston area. And many of them had moved on to other places. They, they would come to church with us while they were students and then graduate, you know how that goes. And uh, so we sent out one letter to say, this is what we're thinking about doing. Are you interested in supporting us? And we raised our entire support for the first year on that one letter. So the wow. response was overwhelming. That helped. Mm-hmm. That, <laughs> that would be good confirmation. Yeah. Yeah. But I remember I also that year I was leading a, a Bible study for the, some of the women in the church um, using Experiencing God by Richard Blackaby. And honestly, Richard Blackaby saved my bacon. He, he kept me on, on track that year because it was very difficult. Leaving, picking up and leaving at that point in my life, um, in our lives, was extremely difficult. And that Bible study really helped me stay on track uh, with God, with mm. the mission, in the midst of some opposition as inevitably comes uh, both internal and external. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's still, that move was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. Hmm. Yeah. I can't imagine. Well, it's, yeah. I, I mean, it, in some ways it's like, I'm kind of, I'm always grateful to hear people say that honestly, like I'm not that I'm glad it was hard for you, Elizabeth. Don't don't hear that. But it's like, but you know, I mean, we can at moments just be like, and God paved a way, and it was just, and we just followed Him the whole time. But there is a reality that it's just, it is really, it is really hard. And, and you know, even in my example with joining Jesus Film Project, that was a really, really hard year for my wife and I, and figuring out life. Uh, coming, coming to that, coming to a new stage, and so, uh, so you had, so now, now you're moving. You get there, and and what? How how is ministry? How is it entering into ministry? Well, it was interesting in a couple of ways. One of the hard things about moving was uh, giving up basically all our stuff. I, re- I remember the hardest mm-hmm. thing for me was giving up our piano. For some reason, that just loomed very mm-hmm. large for me, and. Um, but once once we gave it up, and we gave up our place, too. We were living in a wonderful neighborhood. I had lots of friends. I'd led a bunch of women to Christ in that place. It had just been a fruitful season. Of course, I had close friends in the church as well. But we, we, we kind of got to Uzbekistan, and I remember having the thought, you know, I, I thought I owned my stuff, but my stuff really owned me. I just felt free. That, that first year was just a lot of freedom wow. and then and huge cultural adjustments. I won't underplay that. Uh, it, it was everything was different from grocery shopping, which, you know, you go to the bazaar and you buy a different item from each person, which when you're learning the language is really hard because you want to start a new <laughs> conversation with each person. You know, I need to buy the dishwashing detergent here and the toilet paper here and the onions here and the tomatoes there and the every every one of these is a 
different encounter. And, you know, God forbid I should need to fix the sink because then I've got to go deal with all the people with all their stuff on blankets sitting on the street out in front of the bazaar on Saturday. And, you know, there is no Home Depot. There's no Walmart. There's no nothing. You know, so it was, you know, it was not easy. I, I remember when I threw away my day timer. I don't know if you ever knew what a day timer was, but it was a thing that was designed to help you be real productive, you know, and use every minute and schedule your time and you have your lists. And, and I threw it out after two months. I thought this thing is useless to me here. I was lucky if I could get one thing done mm-hmm. in a day. Wow. Uh, much less frustrating. you know. You mentioned leaving community too. That just stands out to me. That's what I kept thinking. That's what would be hardest for me to leave right now. Yes. Joe and I are just turning, Joe just turned 40. I'm about to, and that's kind of when you said you left and that would be the hardest thing. Was that a huge transition? Oh my goodness. Well, and we didn't didn't have, the only way you could make an international phone call was to walk uh, a half a mile up to the phone office and have a conversation again in the shower with the woman to tell where you wanted to call, give them the number, how many minutes you pay for it. And then you wait until they call your number that they gave you. And then you step into a phone booth and you pick up the phone and hopefully it's ringing and the person on the other end answers. But you right away, the first thing you do is say goodbye because you don't know when you'll get cut off, you know? So I, it was we were wow. so, way different than if you moved we now. We were so far away. I mean, it did feel like half a world away. And so whereas I had this really tight-knit community, if I, you know, if I stubbed my toe, I could pick up and call my girlfriends and ask them to pray for me, you know? And 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 in this situation, yeah. there was no contact effectively. Hmm. Wow. That would be yeah, really hard. Well, it was it was hard and it was and it was good too. I mean, it really pressed me into Jesus, I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, had to, yeah. I had to lean on lean on God. Uh and and there's a sweetness in that. You know, it takes a while to get over the oh dear, what mm-hmm. have I done? Um, but then there's a sweetness in that. I'd love to ask real quick, what does it look like when you get there? I hear, you know, we were brought here to plant a church. Could you Kind of briefly explain the process of that. Well, that was in a different yeah, country. that was that was interesting too because we didn't know what we were doing. You know, I mean, we, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just learning the language. How do you do this? We had translators. Young guy who's he's just phenomenal. Translated for Eric, brand new believer. So we worked. We had to work through translation initially, but God kind of opened the doors for us actually. The fellow that was leading the crew ministry, the, the fellow who actually recruited us to come over, got kicked out of the country before we arrived. And so he turned he oh, wow. turned over to us his contacts within the country. And among them was a, a woman who was the most effective evangelist in the country. I mean, it's ironic that, that, that it was a woman in this context, but that, that's, she was just an amazing, yeah. amazing person, amazing story um, behind her. Her grandparents had been imprisoned there by Stalin. They were originally from Russia. And, um, and so the whole family had to move down to take care of the grandparents, because when you were imprisoned under Stalin, they didn't feed you. They didn't give you anything. They just put you in a room and lock the door, you mm. know, in the prison. And so the whole family had to move down to take care of them. And then once they got out, they were not allowed to leave. And so they stayed. 
and you know that that was her her parents were actually arrested under Khrushchev and sentenced to death but it was commuted so she had quite a story anyway she was working with a lot of um, people with potential for planting churches and that whole network was turned over to us when she was driven out of the country so that's really why we were able to be effective. It wasn't that we were so talented or uh, remarkable. It was that God gave us remarkable, uh, a remarkable network of, of people. And, and in fairness, I think Eric handled those relationships and that network very wisely. He was very prayerful and had a lot of experience by that time, both in church planting in a practical way, but also had a had studied cross-cultural issues well enough to know what he should speak into and what he shouldn't speak into um, so that they could develop their own styles and, and really incarnate the gospel in a way that was uh, relevant to that culture and, and meaningful in that culture. So you've mentioned twice now, Elizabeth, like there were, there were people obviously tilling the soil for your, for your coming in, which obviously that's clearly a divine steps that the Lord's kind of orchestrating. But you've also mentioned two times that people have been kicked out of the country. And so obviously there's a sense of risk that you guys knew you were entering into at this point in time in this country. Uh, How did you start to experience that? Uh, And what, what were the, what were the steps that you guys felt like you needed to take in order to, I don't know, in some way protect yourselves, I guess, or keep what you were doing focused on the mission as well as understanding what could potentially happen. Well, we knew um, going in, as I say, this this um, colleague had already been kicked out. Uh, and that particular country was in the bottom between five and 10 countries on the, on the UN list of uh, for corruption, you know, Corruption and also persecution of uh, religions other than the majority religion. So the government had a pretty bad reputation globally. So we knew what we were, we kind of knew what we were getting into. So we had to assume that our phones were tapped. Um, I mean, they were tapped. It wasn't an assumption. It was fact. I remember a a fellow who was helping pastor a, a church came to visit one day and insisted that Eric take the, not just turn off his cell phone, but take the battery out of his cell phone and leave it in the house before they went in the garden to have a conversation with noise playing over the conversation. And, you know, it was, it was like living in a spy novel. And, and these things were not outrageous. These were things that were well-documented. So what we, what we finally came to was, you know, we have to assume, and Eric was picked up for interrogation the, the first week that we were in country. And they, they basically said, you know, don't kid yourself. We know why you're here. You, you need to bring enough benefit to us being in what you do in humanitarian or educational work to warrant us overlooking the other stuff you're doing that we really don't like. Mm. So they were real wow. out front, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful, I guess. <laughs> well, yeah, were you doing in other a, things in a what? scary kind of way? Was, oh yeah, Eric. Eric was um, started out teaching at a school associated with a, a hospital um, that was staffed by okay. internationals, and then ended up 
shortly taking a, a position at the university, teaching, teaching oh, okay. at the university, which he was obviously well prepared to do. So he's pretty busy. He's not just at home yeah. monogramming, you know, <laughs> things for stuff for Etsy or nothing. He's, he's doing quite a bit of, he's, oh, he's in the word, community. Yeah. He's a busy guy. He's a very busy guy, always. And ended up starting an NGO. We did, um, and by the time we were finished, we had started the largest um, microfinance corporation in the country what? or nonprofit organization in the country. Wow. We, in one year? We, no, no, or? this was by the, by that, that happened uh, about our sixth year in, um, sixth or wow. seventh. Okay. But it was, that's you know, amazing. We, we started an English language library, an English language center for students. Mm-hmm. We were bringing in scholars. We started whole departments in the local university. Um, yeah, we did a lot. We did a so they had no reason to kick you out. Well, no, uh, we <laughs> they, hope not. You were doing a lot for the country. But the yeah. other thing we decided was, look, we need to just represent ourselves, whether we're in private, whether we're in public. Sometimes your response to being surveilled is to think, well, then I have to hide. I got, I have to go deep, you know. Hmm. But that doesn't yeah. really work when you're in a country that's very competent in their surveillance techniques. <laughs> so yeah. you just figure you've got to say what you really mean at all times. And what we really meant was we loved that country. We loved those people. And we wanted to give them the opportunity not to, not to uh, twist anybody's arm, but give everyone the opportunity to hear this good news that had changed our lives. And so we were very, you know, out front about that. And, um, but that, you know, we had lots of reasons to be there. Helping people was important to us. Like I, I never felt like Eric's teaching or that his, the the humanitarian and and educational work that we did was second class work. That was important work. That's also an expression of the gospel. And yeah. but the other expression of the gospel is this good news that goes along with that. That's why we're motivated to do those good things, because our hearts have been changed, because we've come to know. God in Christ. And, and the, you know, the reality that God loves people, that was, mm-hmm. that was not known in that country. So we wanted to bring that good news. So Elizabeth, you understand that you guys are under surveillance. And uh, I know, so clear, you guys are in the thick of it at this point. And I know there's a, a part of your story while you're there that obviously things got seemingly very disrupted. Uh, can you describe a little bit kind of what happened to you guys? You guys are loving the people, loving this country, and uh, you're seeing in some ways also kind of evil take shape. Well, we're, yeah, we're, we're loving it. We, you know, you, you had days you loved it and days you didn't. <laughs> but um, we also were hearing disturbing reports about sort of a radicalism that was developing in certain parts of the country the radicals would typically take up hatchets and there were assassinations and, and they were all assassinations with hatchets. So they would beat their victims to death with the blunt, I mean, beat them senseless with the blunt side of the hatchet and then cut their heads off. So that was always disturbing, you know, (laughs) hearing about that happening. Um, And not a lot, but enough that, you know, you're aware there were, there were attempts on the president's life. There was instability. Um, You know, there's sometimes there were bombings in the city. 
so so it was it was not just that we were being disrupted by by being surveilled it's that the the whole situation felt kind of unstable okay so how how are you and eric navigating this right now you have your kids are with you and you're you get the morning paper and or you hear hey did you hear what happened yesterday terrible news and you're probably thinking oh that's actually not that far from us or you know anything that anyone might think how are you guys navigating those conversations well we were always um it, it probably a little bit is the boiling frog, you know, you just, yeah. <laughs> you stay in the water um, and you, and you think, well, it's bad, but it's not that bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Maybe it's a little worse now, but it's not that much worse. And, and so you just, you know, and, and of course all the, all the expats are kind of comparing notes and deciding what to do, you know, the, but safety wasn't our, most pressing question. It was a question. I mean, we wanted to be safe, mm-hmm. but the most pressing question, honestly, and this isn't because we're great people or anything, but it, the most pressing question is, are we, are we doing what we're meant to be doing? You know, are we supposed to be here? And, and if we're supposed to be here, then we'll leave the safety thing in God's hands, you know? And, and of course we're going to be smart. We're not going to do dumb stuff, but, um, yeah, you just kind of you just kind of get up and you pray a lot. Uh, it's just part of part of living in that environment. It, it's sort of normal. It becomes sort of normal. Um, I was just talking to a friend who went through the war in uh, El Salvador, and uh, and she was saying the same thing that somehow having gunfighting. I mean, it was in some ways a much worse situation than we had where we were living because they had outright war, you know. But she said somehow it became normal. You just kind of you can't stay on pins and needles all the time. So you sort of normalize it. Yeah. So, so then, I mean, you guys are living life and understanding that things are changing the dynamics, the frog in the water, you don't know how bad it could be. So then at what point did you guys realize like, okay, this is, this is bad. Well, the point, the point came when uh, we, we were where we'd been robbed a couple times. They would always rob you. I mean, it was just hoodlums, you know, would come in while everybody was away. Nobody was, they didn't, people didn't have weapons and, you know, guns or anything. And so uh, we'd been robbed a few times. Well, we were aware in the, in the fall of, of 2000 that, that somebody was watching the house. I don't even remember why we were aware. It just became uh-huh. obvious that we were being watched. And then the, the Early morning of October the 4th of that year, I woke up and saw the shadow of a man in our bedroom doorway. And oh. I thought it was Eric. I, I was confused. I, I was half asleep, you know, closed my eyes. And then I felt really uneasy and I opened my eyes again. And now there was a guy at the end of our bed and another guy in the doorway. And I realized this wasn't Eric, you know. And that Eric was actually asleep next to me. And so I, I yelled. I didn't even think about what I was doing. I just yelled to wake Eric up because I, I just thought, oh, my gosh, they're here, which is what I said to him. I said, Eric, wake up. They're here because we knew we knew somebody was watching. Mm-hmm. Well, this was this was them and they were here. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, the words weren't even out of my mouth when the first blow hit. And as per, you know, the style of the radicals in that country, they had hatchets and they were beating us with the blunt side of the hatchet. Well, I, you know, I just figured we were dead. I just figured that's, that's how this was going to end. 
Eric thought the same thing. And I, I just cried out to the Lord. I didn't know what, what else could I do? The guy fractured my skull with the first blow. I ended up with three skull fractures by the time he was done with me. But I, I, I couldn't move. I couldn't defend myself. And so I just laid in bed and this guy just wailed on me. And meanwhile, Eric's lying on the other side of the bed and that, that guy's wailing on him. He ended up with broken teeth and broken bones. And his, you know, he had internal head injuries, lots of brain, you know, trauma. But um, we, we were both just crying out to the Lord. It was so quiet. That was the weird thing. You, you know, we watch movies and people add, it's called Foley, which is the sound effects, you know with violence. Mm -hmm. And so it's supposed to be, we think it's loud, but it's not, it was utter quiet, you know, that you could, that, mm. that you could destroy somebody in the quiet it was just horrifying, horrifying. So I was just mm. crying out to the Lord and in, in just horrible pain. And it just kept coming. It just kept coming. I, I couldn't stop it. I couldn't get up and run away. The guy just kept beating and beating on me. And I, I couldn't believe that a human being would do this to another human being. It was just so shocking. I was just, I was just horrified that, that a human being would do this to another human being. It was just, it was just awful. Yeah. And, um, and then I heard Eric offering to pay off the guy that was beating him, saying, you know, he said to him in Russian, you know, I've got $1,000, I'll give you $1,000. Because we knew, we knew life was yeah. cheap in the bazaar. You could hire an assassin for 50 bucks. Mm. I mean, life was very oh, wow. cheap. So $1,000 seemed like surely that would be enough to call him off. Yeah. And um, yeah. turned out he'd gotten a hold of the hatchet. So by this time, they were wrestling with each other. And so they wrestled over to the side wow. of the room. I wasn't aware of that. I think it was at that point that I was unconscious, finally. And yeah. so in any case, he... he he grabbed the, the box where we kept our cash because there were no banks that we could use. And he probably threw $300 at the guy. The guy took the money and they, and they all ran, ran out of the house. It turned out there were four men, all with running suits and, and ski masks that hid all but their eyes and these hatchets and um, combat boots. They went running out of the house and off they, off they went. And Eric went chasing after them. He found our girls hiding in the backyard and took him to the neighbors and while while he was gone doing that I woke up on the floor I don't know how I ended up on the floor I don't know when I ended up on the floor but I was on the floor bleeding mm. and I couldn't see anything uh, I started crying out my kids names Eric's name you know and nobody was answering and and that was really my lowest point I thought that they were all already dead and uh, so I you know mm. I did a little triage and I thought well I think I'm probably coming soon because uh, I was not not in good shape, and then I heard a noise at the door of someone coming in the house, and I I thought, oh my gosh, they're coming back to finish me off. Mm -hmm. And yeah. but in fact, it was it was Eric. So he came uh. back and found me, and and it, and it was at that point while we were waiting, he called the emergency squad, and we had to wait about an hour and twenty minutes. Oh, and he was oh wow! To stop the bleeding, oh, and you know you can imagine it was just awful. And I was mostly unconscious, occasionally conscious. And oh, uh, he he leaned over me at, at one point and said, honey, someday you're going to look back at this as the best day of your life. And I thought, what are you talking about? I mean, this was a nightmare, you know. But then I thought about I knew immediately I knew what he was referring to that it was a privilege to suffer for the sake of the gospel. 
And, and I did, I felt like, oh my gosh, I joined the club, you know, <laughs> wasn't a yeah. club I wanted to join. <laughs> yeah. You're hoping but, not to. You know, it's the persecuted church. And I think it's important for us as Americans to yeah. remember the persecuted church is happening. That's right now. Yeah. Um, that's a club that's gaining membership today. And so it, it, it made me feel at one in some ways, more at one with the body of Christ than I have ever felt mm. before. And, oh, wow. and really in some ways closer to Jesus than I'd ever felt before. I felt I felt like I, I got it, you know, <laughs> I got yeah. some little tiny piece of what he did for me, you know, and um, it was, wow. I, for a long time, I called it, that, that was my, my refresher course in death and hell, because I knew death, because I realized, oh my gosh, I am going to die, because I thought I was going to die that day. One of my thoughts was, oh my goodness, this was my last day, you know, kind of like, oh no, did I take out the trash, you know, mm -hmm. but... <laughs> You know, just thinking, this is it, it's over. And, um, mm. but the other thing was um, realizing that these guys that did this to me, they were going to go to hell, you know, unless God intervened. So one of the first things I did was to pray for them, to forgive them, mm. to ask God to have mercy on them, to pray that they could come to know uh, his love, come to know Christ and, um, and, mm. and be saved from what was a sure thing. You know, that they God couldn't look me in the face on the last day and not condemn them for what they did to me. That was how I felt, you know. Yeah, wow, that's beautiful. How old were your kids at this they point? Were, they were I mean, 12 and 8. Okay, the yeah, ones that were yeah. home. Our, our other kids were in their, two in his in their 20s. Uh, Andrew was, our, our youngest son was 18. Our older boys were 22 and 24. Mm. And did they ever talk about that night? I mean, yeah, they, that was a hard day for them. Suffering. I mean, that was a hard, obviously yeah. a hard day for all the kids. And um, you know, we all needed some trauma counseling. Yeah. After it was said and done. Yeah. It was. It was pretty pretty bad. So, uh, so you guys are eventually okay. So, so the. <laughs> I guess you can call it the rescue squad of sorts. Uh, so paramedics and such do come and you guys are evacuated out of the country. And where, where do you guys go? Well, they, um, it took, it took 24 hours for them to get the, the little medical jet to the country. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and so they finally, you know, after, after 24 hours in, in the local hospital, which is a whole nother story, but anyway, they, they loaded, me onto the the little cot and the girls and Eric sat in the back and one of the girls sat on the toilet seat for you know it was like oh. a five hour flight and I remember just feeling so relieved that we were going to get out of there because we didn't know who had done it they didn't sign the guest book you know we didn't know who they were yeah. um, police never found them and I remember when the when the plane was taxiing down the runway, I was conscious, and the wheels lifted up, and the Lord spoke to me. One of those times when you just know you've heard God. And he said, you're not finished here. You need to come back. And I have to say, I, I heard that with joy. I was thrilled to be getting out of there, but somehow... When I heard that, I was up for going back. I just, I knew I'd heard it. I knew I'd, I knew I'd heard him. I, um, we were evac to um, Vienna, Austria, and I was in ICU there and then the trauma, on the trauma floor. 
And eventually we got back to the U.S. But I talked to Eric as, as soon as the room was clear, uh, which was a couple of days, and said, I think, I think we're meant to go back. And he said, of course, of course. And so he actually went back a month after the attack, left me in the United States with wow. good care. He had promised to do a wedding. So that was one factor. Yeah. He always does what he says he's going to do. <laughs> so he went back to do the wow. wedding, but he also went back because one of his associates, a local guy, had been charged with the crime. And it was uh, totally outrageous, mm. totally outrageous. And so he went back to stick up for that guy because it was, there's no such thing as justice in that country. They just want to get the thing off the books. They don't care whether you did it, you didn't do it. They just want to say they solved the, the problem. So... Yeah, so they, they just want to charge somebody and get the crime off the books. So so Eric went back to stick up for that guy as well. And then the rest of that, I guess, 10 months, nine months, Eric Eric was in and out of the country coming back to check on us. I, the only thing I said to him was, I have to hear your voice every day to know that you're alive. Hmm. And um, I was, you know, going through rehab and... You know, I, I needed surgery and different things. So, yeah. And then and then at the end of that 10 months, the girls and I went back. Wow, that's fast. Yeah, I was not in good shape when I went back. I was still pretty, pretty weak. Mm. Yeah. It took me the better part of four years to really get recovered. Mm. So you get how, how much, so you guys go back 10 months later and what, I mean, Clearly, there's a jump, and we don't need to get into all the details with how how you guys determined to to move on from that country and and coming to the United States and entering into a new place. But you did at some point. I mean, like you mentioned earlier, you were engaging with Jesus Film Project tools and part of that ministry, and then somehow you're entered into. Uh, you know, Eric, of course, becomes the executive director of is asked to at least become the executive director of Jesus film project. And so how did those, how did that come in and come into play? How far long after had you guys come back? Did those conversations start to happen? Well, we went, we went back in um, 2001 and stayed in country till, till we were kicked out along with virtually every other American and for political reasons not having to do anything with, uh, you know, with, uh, at all with our work. Um, mm. We were kicked out in, in 2006. Eric actually was put on trial and um, oh, tried wow. and convicted of, of proselytizing. Oh, my Tried and convicted of proselytizing. That was actually the worst day of my life, was driving him to the airport when he, he insisted on going back to face charges rather than let his staff face those charges on his behalf. Well, what did, what, what did you feel like that was going to mean for him? Uh, I didn't know what they would do to him. I, I thought they might throw him in prison. Really what it would logically mean would be, um, you know, that you'd be kicked out of the country, expelled. Um, but our case had not been logical already. You know, we were the ones that got, got beat up, you know, it, so I, I really didn't know. I, and he insisted that I, I wanted to go back with him. And he insisted that I not go back because he said, you know, if they throw me in jail, I just want to know that you're safe. If you're safe, then I'm fine. Mm. Um, so that kind of reinforced for me that he was thinking the same thing I was. Thinking. Right. So what was that? What was that car ride like? Yeah. 
Well, I, I was um, cheerful as much as I could be uh, taking him, not cheerful exactly, but positive, mm-hmm. you know, encouraging him. And because we had talked it through and I understood why he was going and I, and I even agreed that, that he was doing the right thing. I, I wasn't sure I agreed that it was right for me not to go with him, but I agreed he was doing the right thing. And then I dropped him off. He went in the airport and I drove away. And uh, I just started crying. I could I couldn't see the road. I had to pull over, and I was I was just uh-huh. mad. I just started yelling at at the Lord, and uh, you know let let the Lord have the full strength of my ire, um, which is something I love about uh-huh. God. You know, you can say anything to Him. He he's he's not sensitive. <laughs> so, and uh, you know, I can say things to the Lord that I can't say to anybody else. And, and he mm. can take it. Not only that, he has perspective. So, so when I finally get it all out of myself and I can quiet my soul and acknowledge him and, and, and worship him, then he can speak to me and, and settle me in unpredictable ways, you know. So it was a very ended up, you know, being, of course, a, a, a sweet time with him. But it was very difficult, very difficult. You didn't touch base much on... And I've heard you say it before, when you came back, though, you were accepted by the people in a different light. Can you shed some light? Well, yeah. When we went back after we were attacked, before that, I had spoken. We'd done like family conferences and and things like that. And people were always real polite, but we always knew that you could see it in their eyes or even the way they spoke to us, that they thought we were nice people, but they just figured what we said didn't really have a whole lot to do with them because our lives were so different. They looked at us and they saw rich American people who'd never suffered. You know, of course we had suffered, everybody suffers, but, but that's what they saw. But after this, they, you know, I'm staggering around. (laughs) We were, we were the walking wounded, you know, yeah. Boy, that was a totally different ball game then. And they listened to every word. They took notes. They, you know, they mm-hmm. came to us. They, it was a whole different atmosphere throughout that whole area. So it ended up really being a gift in terms of the ministry. We were much more effective afterwards. Much more effective. And they're probably surprised. Oh, you came totally. Back. You know, and, and that yeah. that we would come back for them. You know. That was yeah. That was very moving for them, and for us, it was sweet. So we after after we were kicked out, um, then the wonderful man who was leading the area office for crew asked Eric to to come on and and serve under him. So we moved. That office was in France, and so we moved to France. Uh, we were in actually we were the first year after Eric was tried and and expelled. We were all expelled. We lived in, um, and then that second year we moved to France, and we were in France for four years, um, working with Jesus Film teams throughout the whole area. And then we moved to Italy uh, to to lead, and um, so we split it up into Arabic and non-Arabic speaking, and we took the non-Arabic speaking parts. And it was at that point that we were asked to come back and lead the Jesus Film Project, um, move back to Orlando. So we moved to Orlando from Italy. And what year was that? Let's when you see. Moved back? That was 2012. Like 11 12. or 12? Yeah. Okay. I think I met you that in Monterey, maybe 2013. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So now you're part of the Jesus Film Project. And 
I remember when we did meet you and my family met you, we were just so ex- excited and inspired how involved you were, especially in writing and film. So we'd love to hear a little bit about that and just what some of the most memorable projects that you've enjoyed working on. Well, that was, that was fun. You know, um, I kind of by accident got involved with uh, the Magdalena film. I was helping Eric out with his responsibilities overseeing Jesus film work in that whole big area. And uh, there was a conference that he couldn't attend. He was double booked. And so I went to that conference. It happened to be, I didn't even know before I went, it happened to be a conference about this then new Magdalena film, which of course is edited pieces of the Jesus film from the book of Luke of Jesus encounters with women plus Jesus Encounters with Women from the Book of John, edited into one film. And um, so the the women were saying they needed more. They needed a follow-up tool after that. And um, so I kind of by accident got involved in working on that project. I was a writer. I wrote I wrote a novel in as part of a Christian history project that we had. How did we get a hold of that? You know, it's never been published in English. <laughs> see this now. published it in oh, English. Okay. Well, that's okay. a, that's something I'd like to pick up again. Uh, I'd like to make a write a Michener novel about Central Asia, but that's for another day. <laughs> okay. But we're anyway, excited. the um, uh, the folks that were working on this possible follow up tool, what the what the women said they wanted was kind of a soap opera thing, something that was a story, but in episodes, and each episode would have a theme, and it would teach sort of practical biblical theology through the story. and the, But the women said, when, when we gathered them all together, the women said, well, look, we need somebody local to write this because they have to be able to understand us. And these were women from lots of different mm. cultures, but they, were, they all had a few things in common. And they said, it's absolutely essential that we have somebody local, you know, someone who really is from here and understands our culture and our ways. And then they turned to me and said, you should write it. <laughs> that was one of the best moments of my wow. life. I'll tell you. <laughs> really? And, That's um, awesome. And so the folks that were working on that project said, a couple of them had read my sort of English draft of my Russian novel. And they said, you can do this. So they sent me to some classes to learn how to write screenplays. I'd never written a screenplay. And they hitched me up with a woman who wrote Ma- the Magdalena screenplay, Nancy Sawyer Schrader, okay. and wisely uh, had us work together. So Nancy and I, basically, I would, I, w- I would write the, the characters. I could see the characters. I wrote the dialogue. And uh, she helped me sort of shape the story so that the momentum was, you know, we, we jumped through the hoops at the right points uh, along the story. Momentum is very important in film. You can't drag, you get, you know, you have to keep your timing right. And she knew all about that. And she was, a, is a terrific mm. technical writer. And so I would send her all my junk and she would turn it into a screenplay. So she really taught wow. me how to, how to, how to write for film. And, um, and we, we had a lot of fun together. She was in California, Southern California. I was in France. Um, we met each other wow. well into the process and have become wonderful friends. And then uh, in 2009, I believe, we started filming. 
And so I was able to go on set and the director asked me to stand with him and assist him in directing it because I was familiar with the culture. And we had cultural advisors as well that were invaluable. And so actually watching my screenplay, our screenplay be filmed was one of the strangest experiences of my life. I felt, I felt a little like I was having a breakdown or something because what my imagination was coming to life, you know, what's, what's real and what's imagined wow. kind of <laughs> together. So that was, that was a lot of fun. We filmed for nine or 10 weeks. And so that was before you guys. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Were, well, came well before. Yeah. Well before. Well before. That's cool. And then as Eric was the director, you guys continue to work on. That's right. The, the, the group that, that I correct? had yeah. worked with to film the project that was, that's the, uh, film production department in the Jesus film. Uh, I got to know them on the set of the, the Rivka series and then ended up joining their department, what, three years later. So what, maybe you can give some, some other examples, but, you know, obviously Jesus Film Project's uh, position in many ways is just the, the need for media and, and in a way that will engage uh, the hearts of people that that we see that if we are really yearning towards this step of being able to, uh, you know, captivate the watching world in a way that draws them in to experience Christ, how have you seen the power that media plays within that opportunity? Well, I mean, the, the prime examples of that still in my mind are the Jesus film, the Magdalena film, uh, the story of Jesus for children or families, these films that take the word of God and, and literally, act, you know, act them out. You see the people, you see, you hear the dialogue. And, and the fact that we've taken that into local languages just makes all the difference in the world for those people. So we experienced that in Central Asia. Um, in Central Asia, they, the comment was always, well, Jesus is the Russian God. And that was just the way it was. Yeah until we showed them the Jesus film in their language. And, and suddenly they're, they're just arrested by him. And of course, his words are so powerful. This is the word of God, and it sticks with them and is just life-changing. So um, those biblical tools are, in my mind, they're just in a different category from anything else that, that we can do. They're phenomenal, phenomenal tools. Yesterday, today, always amazing tools and beautifully done, I might add, really well as a as now a filmmaker. I've been, you know, working on film now for uh, 12 years, 13 years, learning about film and studying film and making films. Tremendous. They're beautifully, carefully done, well acted, well scripted. And, and again, it's and it's the word of God. Yeah. So. Those are incredible tools, incredible tools. But then we have these follow-up series that are also amazing. You know, the, for example, in the African church, the the criticism in the Africa, in Africa is that the church is sort of a mile wide and a, and an inch deep, you know, that, that in many places, maybe they, they haven't really discovered how the gospel kind of slices through some of their cultural proclivities that aren't necessarily good, you know? 
Uh, how do you deal with these things? How do you deal with witchcraft? How do you deal with multiple marriages? How do you deal with, you know, a whole whole lot of things? And so we created, just before we did Rivka, they created Walking with Jesus Africa, which is a phenomenal series that has helped so many Africans really come to grips with the implications of the gospel and how to live out the gospel in an African context. Beautiful series. Uh, we did the same thing in India, following Jesus India. And, um, and basically that's what Rivka was, the, the, the women's series that we did. It was designed to, to take this and sort of flesh it out in a familial cultural context uh, and, and, and demonstrate actually what I would call, you know, practical theology. What is it? How do you walk with God in this mm -hmm. world, in this culture? And um, so those are tremendous tools. Then the other thing that we do that, that I'm very excited about is, is little short films. And, and in my view, the kind of the shorter, the better films that we can use to spur people on in their thinking about God in a sort of modern context. What are the implications of believing in God? Why do, why do we need God? Seeing how God is relevant in our life today. And some of those are funny. Some of those are difficult. Sometimes we've, we've done, uh, or, or partners have done um, some of Jesus' stories. It's interesting that, you know, one of Jesus' big tools in his teaching was telling stories. And that's what these films are. They're they're like mm -hmm. little modern day parables. Well, as a as so, a little plug, even for Walking with Jesus Africa, I'm in meetings even now recently that the the demand is is much stronger than we can keep up with here. And just the the stories that we've with the intention, like you said, as a follow up material, the the use case that is even exploding right now is that it's become a very evangelistic tool. Uh, and so people are just kind of blown away. So we've, you know, talking with other folks within Jesus Film Project that the the demand is, it's a good problem to have, but we're, we're trying to fund all these different languages as well to get those done, uh, walking with Jesus Africa in new languages as well. That's right. Yeah, and I think of the app that, and it's used all around the world, but I just think of it, especially in America, the app, and you have all those short films on there, and they're just great conversation starters if someone's not willing to watch the film yet or you just have a feeling they're going to be their attention will be caught with these short films because a lot of them like you said are kind of deal with morality or just thoughts of is there a god instead of going you know kind of introducing the jesus film with those short films i, I love the app it's um you know i, w I wish i could just spend all my time running around telling people about the app even on like on college campuses we have so many we have the world coming to us so many mm -hmm. international students on college campuses and i have yeah. lived and functioned in a second language and i know how refreshing it is to watch something anything in my home language you know um you get you, you know yeah. you're, you're not very particular when you're when you're desperate and uh so, you know, to, to hand somebody a film in their language that's well done, well dubbed, um, it's what an opportunity. What an opportunity on a, on a college campus even. But, uh, yeah, so the, the app is great for so many reasons. Well, Elizabeth, I just want to yeah. thank you for taking time today out of your, you know, entering in. You just came down from the 
back from the Northeast down just recently and you're settling back in. So I understand how, you know, your bags probably aren't even unpacked, but we're glad that you're able to uh, take some time and chat with us today. And it, it seems like one thing I appreciate most is it seems like uh, we can pick any year out of the very rich story of what the Lord's brought you through so far. And you can clearly say, this is what God was doing in my life uh, at that time. And I think that amidst the the trauma and tragedy and sadness and joys that you've experienced, I think that's what I like to bring to the surface is that God continues to use you in all these different moments and excited to have you back on and be able to hear about all the new stuff that the Lord's teaching you. So I love listening to you. Thank you for your time. And Laura, I'm sure you have the same resonance. Yeah, we're really grateful for your time today. It's my pleasure. Thank Thank you so much.